Hello and welcome back to Twin Paradox. I'm King Everett Medlin, and what you're hearing is a sci-fi trilogy I wrote four years ago under the pseudonym Purple Hazel. Twin Paradox follows my first podcast series entitled Deathwalker Colony, which is now a full-length novel available for purchase on Amazon. It's on sale today in ebook format for only $2.99, as well as the first two books in the Rigel 12 series, The Rise of New Australia and Return of Anarchy. You can check out those, as well as some of my other works, by going to the link provided in this transcript. When I set out to write Twin Paradox four years ago, I wanted to create a realistic and believable world less than 100 years in the future. In this first book of the Twin Paradox trilogy, the reader learns of our current society's collapse, how the major cities of Earth plunge into anarchy, how the American credit-based economy comes crashing to the ground, bringing an abrupt end to a system that essentially goes all the way back to 1971. Part 1 is called Collapse and Aftermath, and in the first five chapters you'll hear of a new world order taking shape following the debacle, not to mention the beginning of an exciting new era in human history. Twin Paradox is a sci-fi series encompassing three full-length novels, all of which will be read in their entirety during the coming weeks. You can go online and download the ebooks by searching Twin Paradox, Purple Hazel, or, if you prefer, tune in each week and listen to me read them to you. So let's continue. Ladies and gentlemen, Twin Paradox, Chapter 4, Solar Revolution. In Part 4 of her expose, Corey shifted her focus to the rapid turnaround in the world economy in the years following the crisis. Basically, the timing couldn't have been better for a radical revamping of global energy production. And with the addition of a strong central government now guiding economic policy, plus an implied mandate from the people for revolutionary change, solar energy quickly supplanted fossil fuels as the main accepted source for powering the planet. Amazingly, it took less than two decades to make the conversion and ultimately proved that solar power was by far the cheapest and most efficient source for electricity, as well as all other energy applications right along with it. In fact, the transition to solar technology and sustainable energy practices was rather simple, at least on paper. Many a late night, Corey pored over pages on government macronet sites, learning everything she could about just how they did it. Those early pioneers who reinvigorated the world's economy. Not the glossed over and sanitized historical accounts, of course, but actual news reports, environmental studies, and published white papers done by Americans and Europeans, as well as the growing number of scientific intelligentsia who had fled to Europe after the fall of Middle Eastern democracies. One thing she noticed was the clear motivation to change things drastically and without hesitation. The public was behind it, and big business was too. Now that all nations of the global union had the impetus to proceed, developments within the photovoltaic industry came fast and furious from drawing board to reality, despite, of course, reservations among some within the energy industry that photovoltaic applications on a global scale were far too tall of an order without meticulous planning and a careful long-term integration into existing systems. Objections like those were rare, however, and quickly overruled by the now immensely powerful GU. 
Once the government demanded global conversion to renewable energy sources for everything from power plants to motor vehicles, the development of those technologies associated with it led to a worldwide boom and the creation of millions of new jobs. In the meantime, resistance to Karl Habsburg and his aggressive policies was sporadic and isolated at best. To be sure, just how could anyone argue? Millions of unemployed Europeans and North Americans, desperate for steady work, viewed it as an opportunity for good-paying jobs, not the least of which requiring the placement of thousands upon thousands of square kilometers of solar mirrors to establish a modernized energy grid. Besides that, and perhaps even more importantly, practically no one doubted the far-reaching effect it would have on world political stability. Once this was portrayed as a global security issue, most remaining dissenters within the energy industry fell right into line. Oh, they bitched and whined about it, ain't gonna lie, said one weathered old retired solar farm worker in that style of speech that Corey had grown up hearing in old movies from back in the 2020s. But only at first. Them old boys at the utility companies and the coal mines, I mean. The oil companies, too. They didn't want to let go of that gravy train too soon, you see. Then he laughed as he recalled those exciting times from his youth. <laughs> old Carl Habsburg, though, he set him straight, you know. Gave him a deadline, straight up told him what he wanted and when. Made it real clear. Oh, yeah. They knew he wasn't going to let him fuck around no more. Corey had to assume that government censors would eventually bleep out the old fellow's salty language before it aired worldwide, but to her surprise, they let it slide. In other interviews, she was all but certain they would make her delete whole sections, yet they didn't, for example. It was real simple in those days, said the old man she had interviewed sitting with his aging wife down in Detroit. Step out of line. You don't get no food that day. Run your mouth and some soldier gonna shoot your ass dead right there in the street. Corey shifted uncomfortably in her chair when she heard him say that, but the man continued unabated. He knew the younger generation had no real concept of what things were like back in those days. Ain't nobody care. That just one last mouth to feed, you see. Folks be stepping right over your ass saying, Fool, why you wanna go and get yourself shot? At that point, his wife chuckled and nodded right along with him as she hummed, Mm-hmm, in apparent agreement with every single word he said. Even better, and all the more highly motivating to a world that had seen the rise and zenith of Islamic terrorism, was the vastly appealing idea that these new radical regimes clinging to power in the Middle East would soon have their economies dry up from a lack of oil export revenue, once the West had converted to solar. They could no longer hold the world hostage to oil exports, and that alone would bring them crashing down one by one. No one had a monopoly on the sun's rays, after all. That concept, and the common knowledge that the world's fossil fuel reserves were indeed finite and likely to run out within a few generations, was plenty to inspire rapid conversion. Corey was keen to re-emphasize this important point several times in Part 4. Technically, solar energy should have been the best choice for an alternative, she reported. It was easy to install and could bypass the old electricity grids, delivering power directly to the end user right from a permanent and infinite power source, the sun. Solar thermal power plants did come with their inherent drawbacks, of course. Concentration solar collectors could only focus the sun's direct radiation and could not concentrate diffuse skylight, 
In other words, solar rays reaching the Earth's surface after having been scattered in the atmosphere. As a result, solar thermal power plants would only perform well in very sunny locations, specifically the arid and semi-arid regions of the world. There were plenty to choose from. The problem was in going to those favorable locations and building facilities sizable enough to power entire regions or countries. Although the tropics had high solar radiation, the long rainy seasons made these regions less desirable for solar thermal power plants. The most appealing regions for them were clearly southern Africa, Mediterranean countries such as those in North Africa, Spain, and southern Europe, India, parts of South America, the southwestern United States, the high deserts of Nevada and Utah, northern Mexico, and Australia. In these regions, operating characteristics of solar thermal power plants were relatively well matched with intermediate and peak electricity load requirements. Not surprisingly, Corey had a hard time detailing all this in her broadcast, but no question about it, the boom this caused in employment opportunities led to the creation of millions of new jobs for weary communities, suffering for so long without solid, consistent income to support families. Laboring in the intense climates of some of these regions was no small task, but tough men and women, literally millions of them, gladly jumped at the chance and endured immense hardships just to be able to send much-needed euros to their families back home. Oh God, it was something else, let me tell you, commented the old man who was a retired solar farm worker. Eleven months on, one month off, twelve-hour shifts, four days a week, hauling and installing till we covered up damn near half of Nevada. He then went on to describe having to live in stuffy army-style barracks at night after broiling in the hot sun all day on the job site. It was much like being in the military, as he portrayed it. Or a POW camp, he said jokingly. (laughs) We were miles and miles from anywhere, and they didn't allow no alcohol in them shacks, neither. They was just modular buildings hauled out into the desert on flatbed trucks and dropped onto a pad by a crane, you see. Wasn't much to them. He said construction crews would assemble the components on site and connect endless rows of them to create an entire community practically overnight. Males and females had segregated quarters, including separate showers and bathrooms. But there was plenty of fraternization on the days off, as Corey soon found out. Oh yeah, everybody fucked. Was pretty much all we had to do, really. Play cards and go get laid, he said chuckling. (laughs) company got on us about it occasionally. Tried shutting it down. Tried discouraging all the sex going on. Finally just started putting condom dispensers in all the washrooms. Next thing you know, folks started breaking them open so often that, well, well, they eventually just gave them out for free. Government didn't want no new pregnancies. Figured we was going to do it anyway, you know. But by 2046, a new opportunity came to light which offered an even bigger stir within the scientific community. Scientists announced plans for mining the solar system for precious metals and minerals necessary for powering the new global economy. It started with the Earth's moon and developed rapidly from there. The moon, scientists had determined decades before, had millions of tons of near-pure water ice actually about 6.6 trillion kilograms of it, buried beneath as much as 40 centimeters of dry regolith. The moon has no atmosphere, 
And for water ice especially, it will turn into water vapor and dissipate into space as the moon's low gravity will not hold gases for any length of time. In any given lunar day, 29 Earth days, the entire surface of the moon is exposed to sunlight and surface temperatures reach 120 degrees Celsius. That said, Corey learned, approximately 15,000 square kilometers of area around the moon's south pole is permanently shadowed. It was water easy to access and relatively pure for industrial use, she went on to read, mainly separating constituent hydrogen and oxygen to manufacture rocket fuel by inserting electrodes made from a cobalt phosphate mixture into water, which acted as a catalyst for splitting water molecules into their components. In recent times, such systems had already been utilized on Earth to power commercial vehicles and even large office buildings using solar panels to store up chemical energy. Domestic vehicles operating on hydrogen fuel cells powered by solar energy gradually replaced clunky old automobiles that still ran on now antiquated internal combustion engines. But scientists claimed and then later proved that propellant could indeed be produced from moon water and then distributed at refueling stations in low Earth orbit, enabling manned exploration ships to refuel while still in space. Besides that, launching from the moon into deeper space made much more practical sense because its gravity is one-sixth that of Earth. Robotic lunar mining operations were thus designed and implemented, with human operators controlling mining robots in real time from back on Earth, sitting in comfortable office buildings in front of computers, working 12-hour shifts four days a week. Corey tried but could never find anyone from that profession to interview for her expose, unfortunately. Mostly former computer programmers and online game designers who flocked in droves to these new jobs as they opened up. Word was many of these carefree nocturnal types had long since passed away. What's more, she never could locate any retired lunar mining engineers or maintenance crews, as well as support staff and transport unit operators. These brave souls lived in dormitories located inside lunar bases constructed on the surface, rotating staff in and out every six months. They would have made for rather lively interviews she could only imagine. However, lunar water mining was only the first step, she learned. After lunar mining operations created rocket fuel for transporting shuttlecrafts back and forth to Earth, methane and ammonia, also contained in cold craters, were tapped into for their carbon and nitrogen, which became necessary ingredients for long-term lunar settlement. Thus, the development of massive lunar colonies capable of partially sustaining themselves grew into existence. This gave the moon's mining operations an almost permanent labor source by the end of the 2050s. They could actually grow their own food using hydroponic gardening systems and produce drinking water from the moon's water ice. Corey was never able to find any veterans from those early days of colonization either. Many, she had heard, had succumbed to illnesses like emphysema or acquired lung or breast cancer later in life. With time, the sacrifices of the few paid off for the masses, though. This served to expand lunar mining operations into the even more lucrative acquisition of helium-3, a prime fuel for nuclear fusion. It enabled the moon to become a low-cost launching pad for further space exploration, and with it, the eventual exploitation of the vast mineral wealth found in space. 
There was plenty to be found there, having been embedded in the upper layer of the moon's regolith over billions of years. This part fascinated Corey the most in her research about commercial exploitation of the moon. Unprotected by any global magnetic field, like in the case of Earth, the moon is repeatedly bombarded by massive quantities of helium-3 by solar wind, which is a continuous flow of charged particles from the sun that permeates the entire solar system. It has happened throughout the millennia. Scientists theorized for decades that this isotope would offer safer nuclear energy in fusion reactors because it is not radioactive. Best of all, it would not produce dangerous waste, which had always been the biggest drawback to old-fashioned nuclear fission power plants. This factor alone was probably the biggest benefit to mankind. Up to that point in history, usable amounts of thermonuclear energy, released in a controlled manner, that is, had yet to be achieved. Acquiring helium-3 from lunar mining operations changed all of that. The physics behind a fusion-driven rocket with solar panels on the sides collecting energy to initiate the process, were now attainable, and by the end of the 2050s, the initial problem of manned deep space travel finally seemed to be resolved. But that was not all, Corey was delighted to learn. There were far more fascinating developments to follow. Asteroids, it was commonly believed in the scientific community, possessed iron and other valuable materials, Above all, platinum could be found in great quantities. Platinum was used in electrical contacts and electrodes, as well as laboratory equipment and resistance thermometers. It will not corrode, it's stable at high temperatures, and it is more precious than either gold or silver. Basically, one-fifth of everything used or manufactured on Earth either contains it or requires it in its manufacture. Platinum is also used in the fabrication of silicones for the aerospace and construction sector, thereby making it possible, with the acquisition of millions of tons of it naturally, to someday conquer space. Nuclear fusion-powered spacecraft could in all likelihood fly to the asteroid belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, and bring back just what Earth needed in order to develop a ship fully capable of going even farther farther into space than humans could have ever imagined going only a century before. This concludes tonight's podcast of Twin Paradox, Book 1, Chapter 4, Solar Revolution. I hope you enjoyed it. Watch for Episode 5, which I'll be posting very soon. I wrote Twin Paradox, Books 1, 2, and 3, four years ago under the pseudonym Purple Hazel and it is still available for purchase on Amazon. You can download and read all three books if you like, or if you prefer, simply listen in as I read them in their entirety, all 60 chapters. Also, and don't forget, my latest full-length novel, Death Walker Colony, is available right now in ebook format and can be downloaded today on Amazon.com, along with the first two books in the Rigel 12 series, The Rise of New Australia, and Return of Anarchy. I'm King Everett Medlin. Thanks for tuning in.